Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. Hello. Hello. Uh, I can't quite decide whether to do the chair or the lectern. The lectern, all right. I might come back to the chair for the questions, if that's all right. Um, It's very nice to be here at Hay again. Uh, First of all, apologies if any of you thought I was going to come here and do a, a cooking demonstration this afternoon. Um, if you've read the, uh, the festival brochure, it looks as if I, I'm going to be cooking about 17 different dishes from, from around the world. Uh, and if I, if I did what it says in the programme, we'd be here for many, many hours. We'd have a very good feast at the end of it, though. Um, instead, uh, I'm going to do what most people do at Hay, and that's talk, um, read a little bit. Uh, most of all, I'd like to try and get a, a dialogue going with you, the audience. Um, the subject under discussion is the very knotty one of meat, uh, a subject that I'm very passionate about. And I want to find out a little bit, before we start, about where you all stand with regard to meat. So I'm going to start by asking you a few questions. Uh, so I know what we're dealing with. My, and my first question is, how many of you here eat meat? Okay. Right. And my second question is, how many of you here don't? How many of you here are vegetarians? Okay. And of those vegetarians who are here today, How many would describe yourselves as sort of floating vegetarians, uh, might consider going back to meat uh, under the right circumstances? Any any in that category? One or two? So how many of the vegetarians would say that nothing that I can say here today will ever induce you to let another piece of meat pass your lips as long as you live? Okay. Right, well, I think there's a couple of you. Um, to be perfectly honest, it's, it's, not, it's not the vegetarians I'm after today, which is lucky. Uh, it, it's you carnivores, and I've got a couple more questions for you. How many of the meat eaters here today can say honestly that they really care about the quality of the meat that you eat? Okay. Okay, so how many of you who put your hands up saying you were carnivores uh, didn't put your hands up then? I.e., how many of you honestly admit you don't really care about the quality of the meat you eat? Okay. Okay, about the same as the vegetarians then. And how many of you, meat eaters, and I guess vegetarians too, care deeply about the lifestyle and the welfare the contentment, if you like, of of the animals that we farm for meat. Okay. And how many of you don't? Okay. Okay. 
Okay. Here's the tough ones. How many of you have in the last 12 months eaten meat from McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, from the chill cabinet in the supermarket where it wasn't specified that the meat was either free range or organic? Basically, how many of you have eaten meat where you weren't, where you couldn't be entirely confident that it was from a high welfare, extensive system of meat production? So that's just about the same number of you who are carnivores then. <laughs> Clearly, my work is not yet done. Well, what that illustrates, I think, is that there is a gap. There is a gap between what we say we care about when it comes to meat and the way we behave when we get behind the wheels of a supermarket trolley or into a restaurant, or even at the butchers, wherever it is that we choose to eat meat. And I've written a book called The River Cottage Meat Book, uh, the principal aim of which I think I could reasonably say is to try and close that gap, to close the gap between uh, the amount that people clearly feel about meat and the way we produce it, and what they're actually prepared to do about it. Because I don't think that it is, in any more than a small part, the laziness of the consumer or the ignorance of the consumer. Well, it is in some ways actually the ignorance of the consumer, but it isn't entirely the consumer's fault. Because the way that meat is produced and marketed on an industrial and intensive scale is secretive. The way that meat is labeled and sold in the supermarket and in some butchers is secretive. Labels don't tell us the information we need to make the decisions that give us the confidence that those things that we say we care about are being addressed by the people who rear the animals and take them to slaughter. That's the basic problem. What that means is that a little bit extra is demanded of you, the consumer, if you're going to put your money where you say that your mouth is. And if you're prepared to do that, then it's not just that you will be able to find the good quality meat, the high welfare standards. It's that you'll be able to increase its market share. You'll actually be able to, to affect the way that supermarkets tell their farmers to produce meat. You'll be able to affect the way that supermarkets label their meat. In short, you will be responsible for an increase in high welfare extensive systems of meat production and a decrease in the market share of intensively farmed, factory farmed meat. And that has to be worthwhile. Now, you see occasional initiatives uh, that look like they're coming from the multiples and the big retailers that look like they're addressing these issues. You see what you might call the premium lines of the big supermarkets. Uh, beef that's been, that they boast is from a, from a, a special breed, a Hereford or, or an Aberdeen Angus often. It's been properly aged, uh, it's been hung well, and you're being charged maybe anything up to twice as much for it. Um, 
And then there are the sort of in-betweenies. There's a bit of outdoor rear, reared pork. There's a sort of free-range chicken, but you don't quite know what sort of life it's lived. So you are given these choices, and there is uh, a sort of continuum. Now, the supermarkets uh, are doing that, really, not because of any tremendous commitment to high welfare standards in meat production. They're just doing it because they want to catch you all and get you all in the stall in the store, and they know that there are some of you who are prepared to spend a bit more on meat, so they don't want to lose your custom. But at base, they are still trying to shift huge volumes of intensively farmed meat, and indeed, they're succeeding. Now, all, all I ask of you um, that I hope you might take away from today's session is that you just consider roughly where you are at the moment on the meat acquisition continuum, we could call it, the MAC, oh, that's a bit unfortunate. <laughs> uh, ask yourselves where you are anyway on that continuum, and if you could move a little bit further along it, or even a long way further along it, in terms of the way you buy meat. And we may just revisit that as we come to the end of the session. Um, I'm going to read two or three little pieces from the book, which uh, brings together a few of these ideas and um, offer, if you like, some solutions or make what I hope is a strong case for, for you finding those solutions. Uh, this is from a chapter at the very beginning of the book called What is Good Meat? This entire book is based on the argument that meat should be something precious, always to be savoured, never to be squandered. And if that's the cook's attitude, your attitude, then every time you sit down to eat a piece of meat will be a mood-enhancing moment. It may not be earth-shattering, though let's hope that once in a while it is. But it should, at the very least, always be a net gain, a ladder, not a snake, in the ups and downs of another busy day. That's what mealtimes are for. And that's what meat, more than any other food, should be bringing to our table. To achieve this happy state of affairs as often as possible, one thing that will help enormously is to know from the outset that you have in your hands the very best raw materials. The reality, unfortunately, is that most of the raw meat in our shops is of pitiable quality. And the reason for this is simple. We appear to be happy to buy poor meat, so poor meat is what they keep giving us. As long as it's cheap, we don't complain. And as long as we can load it in the trolley without flinching at the price, we don't ask awkward questions either, such as where it came from, what it was fed on, how it lived and how it died, how it was stored, cut and packed, what was added, and how far it traveled. Yet it's the answers to these questions that tell us whether what we have in front of us is worth taking back to the kitchen. And all too often, it's those answers, and not the price, that should really make us flinch. I don't mind how many times or in how many ways in this book I make the point that good meat should not be cheap. That cheap meat is more often than not ethically tainted, of untraceable origin and dubious quality. And to those who play the socio-economic card, saying, what about the poor? They'll never be able to afford your fancy, organic, rare breed, meat, rare breed meat from pampered farmyard pets. 
an argument frequently used by government to justify the massive subsidies and legislative support for intensive meat farming. I say, don't peddle that hypocritical line to me. Flooding the market with cheap meat would be an obtuse way of tackling poverty, poverty and dietary privation in a civilized Western country. Hardly anyone in the West is suffering from problems associated with too little meat, whereas millions are not getting enough fresh fruit and vegetables and whole grain cereals to maintain good health. Principally, what's needed is the education to understand that these, along with a modest amount of really good meat, are not a mountain of cheap burgers and pies made out of meat recovered mechanically from slaughterhouse slurry, are the foundation of healthy eating. It's debatable whether the mass market for cheap meat was ever created out of any sense of social responsibility or welfare. But even if it was, such good intentions have long since been corrupted in the industry. Today, the driving force of intensive meat production is the search for profit. The millions of factory-farmed, hormone-laced, protein and water-injected, deep-frozen chicken portions that are sold each week are not going to families on the breadline. They're being processed, prepared, and packaged to disguise the horrors of their production and going via the supermarkets to busy mums and dads who are conned into thinking that this is healthy, nutritious food for their families. In the end, cheap meat is a false economy. This is because meat is a food for which quantity is never a substitute for quality. And once you've tasted a really good barbecued burger, of the kind I describe on page 398, <laughs> I suggest you'd never be tempted to swap it for a dozen Big Macs. Similarly, similarly a fat frozen chicken from an intensive production system, swollen by hormones and injected with water, will taste so pulpy and bland that you could eat every last scrap of it without ever encountering the real taste of roast chicken. By contrast, a couple of slices off a slow-grown, corn-fed, maybe organic bird, along with a trickle of the tastiest chicken gravy you've ever made, should leave you very satisfied with the promise of some delicious cold cuts and a hearty soup to come. Personally, I think it would make sense for almost all of us to pay more money for less meat of better quality. I'd go further and say we should be ready to pay twice as much money for half as much meat from animals that have lived infinitely better lives. Well, that's a bit of, bit of opening polemic in the book. Uh, and I go on to describe in some detail the intensive systems and the alternatives and suggest ways in which you can uh, get in touch with, with alternative sources of, of top quality meat. Uh, one of those, which I'm, I'm sure many of you here are, are well aware of, of course, is farmers markets and other forms of direct sale, uh, farm gate sales. Uh, another is to rear your own meat, and that's, that's a choice which I've taken in the last few years and which, which I found enormously rewarding, and not least because uh, it set a benchmark of, of quality against which I, I can now measure the other meat that I eat. And it's also given me a, a, a first-hand knowledge and understanding of uh, animal husbandry issues and the, 
the questions of the lifestyle of the animals that we eat. Um, and, and that experience of rearing my own livestock has left me in no doubt uh, about one thing, uh, and that is that, that all the animals that we farm for meat, and this goes down to the fish, but, but thinking perhaps today more of from poultry up to pigs, pigs of course being very smart, gregarious creatures, entirely able to form attachments and social bonds, uh, not just with each other, but with people, with my dogs, in fact. My dogs get on very well with my pigs most of the time. Most of the time. Uh, but um, th these are all animals, uh, these are all sentient creatures which have a complex pattern of behaviors and which need uh, and must really be allowed to, to exercise those behaviors. And it's really... Um, it's against, it's, it's those natural behaviors, if you like, that are for me ultimately the litmus of the contentment of a farmed animal. And they sh the fulfillment of those instincts and uh, behavior patterns should be the aim of, what, uh, well, of, of what's called, what's long, long been called a, a, a phrase that I've always felt very resonant and uh, appropriate. It, that, and that's good husbandry. That is the aim of good husbandry, to keep contented animals who can express uh, a natural pattern of behavior. Um, the thing about the intensive systems, uh, whichever end uh, of the spectrum, whether you're talking poultry or, or pigs, uh, is that's where they really uh, uh, let, well, let the animals down, is they are simply forcing animals into entirely unnatural sets of behavior. And indeed, the, the animals then have to be uh, physically treated in a way that, that prevents the, the, or the aberrant behavior. So you have poultry being de-beaked and pigs having their tails docked and uh, uh, having their teeth taken out so they can't fight with each other, and, and all those things that, that really make the whole business so, so unsavory. But thinking of the word unsavory, um, it isn't just in the feel-good factor that uh, you reap the reward for making the choice in favor of, uh, of, good, of uh, high welfare meat. Uh, the reward especially is when you come to eat it. Uh, there really is a huge difference in taste and flavor. Uh, and in the uh, second or third chapter of the book, I describe that difference uh, in, in some, well, actually it's in summary of this chapter, called What is Good Meat? So this, if you like, is a little bit about the upside. Uh, it's, a, it's a section of the book called Recognizing Good Meat. I hope the respective profiles of good and bad meat are becoming clear. On the one hand, extensively farmed, slow-grown animals, slaughtered locally, perhaps, nicely fatted, properly hung, carefully butchered, and sensibly packaged. On the other hand, intensively reared stock, rapidly grown to slaughter weight on a distorted diet, driven long distances to their death, barely hung, lean and bloody, cut and packaged within a few days of slaughter. It's hardly surprising that such big differences in production are reflected in big differences in the final character of the meat. In each case, the meat from one system has a different color texture, smell, and taste from meat produced by the other system. I'll get to more specifics in later chapters when I discuss 
each of the main farm meats in turn. But in terms of general cooking and eating quality, I'll have a go at describing the differences as I see them and taste them. Intensively farm meat is usually paler in colour, often looking wet and weepy compared to slow-grown, extensively farmed meat, which should be shiny but not sweaty. To handle, poorer quality meat is often wet and slippery, almost fish-like, rather than lightly tacky. When you come to cook it, it tends to shrink a lot and may leach watery juices into the pan. In a frying pan, for example, this can make it much harder to brown the surface of the meat. Despite the wetness, when you come to eat it, the mouthfeel of intensively farmed meat is usually dry and the texture is often soft and pate-like, as if the meat has already been processed in some way, which in a sense it has. The flavour often seems to be on the outside rather than the inside of the meat. This means that the taste experience has no length, as a wine buff would say. With good meat, the flavour will increase and develop with chewing. With poor meat, it'll diminish and dissipate rapidly. A few good chews of the best meat and it slips easily and pleasingly down the gullet. With inferior meat, you're all too often left with a pith ball of dry, tasteless pap in your mouth, like squeezed out cotton wool. Incidentally, it's no great matter of expertise to make these observations. I'm confident that if I served you a steak from one of my cows alongside the cheapest equivalent off the supermarket shelf, you'd easily discern a marked difference, and I'd take a pretty large bet as to which you'd prefer. I'm not sure my money would be entirely safe, though. Very often, people grow to like what is familiar to them. At the same time, there are many ingenious technologies now available to enhance the eating qualities of intensively farmed meat. The addition of beef extracts and other meat proteins to chicken, for example, is now routine. The ultimate achievement of industrial meat farming and supermarket retailing would, I suppose, be to influence a whole generation to prefer their modern product to what has, for centuries, been regarded as good meat. Injecting meat with additives and extracts is the current means to this end. The genetic modification of livestock, for example, flavoring the chicken with beef while it is still alive, may well be the next tool in the box. I take the optimistic view that such endeavors will fail, because the gulf in eating quality between what I'm inclined to call real and artificial meats seems to me to be widening all the time. Now that I have the regular pleasure of eating meat from animals that I've raised and taken to slaughter myself, I'm completely convinced that nothing produced through intensive farming comes anywhere close. So that's what I feel about the, the taste of this meat. Now, there's another aspect to the way in which we can embrace uh, a more holistic uh, approach to meat consumption. And, and, that's a, and that is very much in that, in that word, holistic. It's to do with our attitude to the entire animal 
and it's to do with reconnecting the fact that meat comes from an animal uh, which has a nose and a tail and everything in between. And it's to do with, I mean, personally, however, however much uh, cash you've got to splash around, and you may, may already feel that it's worth spending good money on, on top quality meat, but uh, however much the economics of it I isn't an issue for you, uh, I think it's bad for the soul to hog all the prime cuts. I think uh, everyone who has a good relationship with meat should be interested in the animal in its entirety. And uh, that's something I've been passionate about uh, for a long time, as those of you who've seen some of the things I've cooked on some of our programs will perhaps be aware. Um, but trotters and tails and noses and ears and heads and brains and livers and tongues and kidneys and all those things are extremely important parts uh, of the meat diet. And I think uh, that by ringing the changes through uh, all the different parts of the animal, you do actually achieve uh, a greater sense of, of, of your relationship, if you like, with the deceased. And if that's beginning to sound a little strange or perverse uh, to some of you, I don't think we should fight too shy of embracing that notion because when you do uh, sit down and eat meat, you are eating a dead animal, and to eat an animal is to have some kind of a relationship with it. And uh, there's no getting away from that. And personally, I think it's a healthier relationship, probably in every sense of that word, uh, if you have a fully rounded view of what that animal was when it was alive, uh, complete with all its body parts, and of the kind of life that it lived. But I think in many ways this is perhaps the, the trickiest thing uh, for those who are, who are looking to maybe make a few changes in the way they uh, shop for and cook and eat meat, um, because the habit because, because so many prime cuts have been available for so long for relatively little meat uh, that we've kind of lost the habit, uh, the nose-to-tail habit of, of cooking the more unusual cuts of meat, the, the extremities, if you like. Um, so this is something else that I'm very passionate in uh, in the book, and I've written a great deal about the slow cooking techniques that uh, often bring about the best in these unusual cuts of meat. And I've had a whole chapter at the end, which I might read a short bit out uh, from in a minute, uh, called Meat Thrift, which is all about eking out the, the very best that can be gained uh, from this top quality meat. Um, so, so, uh, so in a way, that, that's demanding an element of, of, of kitchen re-education from the cook. But again, the, the reward is in, is in what you produce at the end of that. And I think anyone who's uh, ever decided to um, start growing vegetables or start making their own bread or start exploring any aspect, any new aspect of, of their culinary culture or their kitchen uh, behavior will know what a fantastic, re fantastically rewarding experience that is. And it normally, once it's started, it, it has a sort of self-fulfilling uh, energy and uh, that keeps you going on through the experiments so that uh, bread bakers become bakers for life. And I think the same is true of meat. And if you, if you switch over your habits to a more holistic nose-to-tail approach, uh, you'll pretty soon get hooked on some of the delicious foods that, that you create. 
One, one sort of myth about that kind of cooking that I'd like to, to scot straight away is that uh, it's tremendously time-consuming. Uh, it is in one very literal sense. In the, I, I've mentioned that slow cooking, which is perhaps the area where most of us have most room for improvement in the meat repertoire, uh, slow cooking almost by definition sounds like it's going to take quite a long time. Uh, and it does take a long time in the pot, but uh, of course that's, that's free time as far as you're concerned. Uh, the actual process of getting the meat into the pot is often very fast indeed. So don't be put off by the, by the idea of hours spent slaving in front of the stove. It's often 10 minutes spent popping ingredients into a pot, and then you can put your feet up for two or three hours. So I'm just going to finally, before we, we start talking together, uh, read a little bit uh, from the meat thrift chapter that I hope will, will encourage people to think in a more holistic way. To uphold the principles of thrifty meat consumption requires a commitment to diversity and creativity. But that doesn't mean you have to be extravagant or profligate. Quite the contrary. If you're even moderately well-off and could afford good meat, there's no excuse for dabbling with factory-farmed rubbish at all. But splashing out on prime roasting and grilling cuts of organic beef, lamb and pork isn't on its own the solution either. The best thing you can do for the welfare of meat animals and for your own pleasure in the kitchen is firstly to find a source or sources of responsibly, respectfully farmed meat, and secondly, to make a commitment to using the whole gamut of cuts, of available cuts from, and in the case of the pig, including, nose to tail. If you're interested enough in good meat to have come this far, then why not go the whole hog? Make an active commitment to explore those thrifty dishes that have served the peasants of the, of the world so well. These are invariably among the most delicious dishes of any food culture, necessity being the mother of invention and all that. Of course, knowledge of such dishes is indispensable to those on a tight budget. It always has been. But these days, it's clear that there are two ways of saving money when it comes to buying meat. The modern way is to head straight for the section of the supermarket where low prices reflect low standards. We're talking two-for-one deals on mass-produced chickens and economy packs of frozen minced beef. And then there's the old-fashioned approach, and that's to know what to do with certain cuts of meat that are inexpensive, even when taken from the best possible carcass. Shin of beef, scrag end of lamb, or belly of pork, for example. Such thrifty practice has always been in the best interests of good farming, good cooking, and good conscience. Those who embrace it do the whole business of meat production a big favor. Right. Now, I'm going to leave it there. I, I've sort of laid down a bit of a gauntlet, uh, given the, uh, the gap in the show of hands between the, uh, those of you who care and those of you who shop as if you care. Um, there are many, many issues to explore in, in this uh, business, and I'm very keen to hear uh, how you respond to what I've sort of put out in the first half hour or so. So there are roving microphones, and I'm ready to take any questions. I don't want you to feel you, we have to be restricted to this topic, and I'm quite happy to answer the odd question on, uh, if you like, the more trivial business of, uh, or, or the less uh, meaty side of, of what I do. 
But I'm certainly keen to see uh, what the general response is to the, uh, the meat arguments that I've laid before you so far. So uh, anyone got a, a question or a point that they'd like? Man with umbrella, very hard to ignore. Thank you. Um, I'm always deeply skeptical of the media and the way things are portrayed on the media. So could I ask you in terms of your pedigree, how much of what is portrayed on the media, i.e. River Cottage and various other sort of programs, is actually true of your lifestyle? Right. Good. Uh, where am I going to um, a, a good question and a fair question. Um, you're quite right to, to be uh, skeptical and to, to assume that uh, all that you see on television is, is not absolute reality. And uh, I think it's fair to say that the River Cottage series was not an observational documentary about my life in the country. Um, however, it did represent a genuine move uh, for me from uh, London uh, to Dorset and a genuine experiment as to whether I wanted to make that move permanent. Uh, the fact that I had a, uh, a well, I had a girlfriend and a, a little boy who I left behind in London and who weren't on screen uh, was a complexity of, uh, of the real question, if you like, that the audience wasn't asked to worry about. Uh, but I had a lot of time to think about. So I was, at the time, living something of a double life, uh, bringing my family down to the River Cottage as often as I could and going up to London to see them. Uh, in the end, the, the happy result of the experiment is that we now all live in Dorset. Uh, we sold up in London and bought a small farm within half an hour of River Cottage, where we now have a bit more livestock than I had there. We've got a flock of 20 ewes, about six cows. I've just, uh, had, I've just farrowed my piglets at home for the first time. Pre previously, I've bought wieners in the spring and fattened them up over the summer. So we've just had our first lot of piglets, and we had 11 of those. So I think um, there's a, a pretty close tie-up between what you've seen in the series and, and, uh, and what I've done in real life. Uh, and in a way, I wouldn't feel entitled to stand here and, and talk about issues of animal welfare and, and uh, husbandry unless that was the case. It certainly made me much more passionate about those issues. Any, who, who, yeah, uh, gentleman over there uh, with his right hand up and a white slogan on your T-shirt, yes. Dark glasses in your hair. Uh, you've made much of the rights of uh, animals to live decent lives. How do you feel when you've killed a pig and you have its blood on your hands? Well, I, uh, I, the time I get its blood on my hands, uh, literally, is usually the evening of the slaughter uh, when I go into the kitchen to make black pudding. Um, I don't slaughter the animals literally, physically myself. I take them to a slaughterhouse, which is about 10 minutes away. Um, I feel infinitely better about rearing and, and killing my own meat and then eating that meat than I, because I know so much about it and I know how it's lived than I ever could about something picked up blind in, in a supermarket that I know nothing about. Um, uh, there is a, uh, a, a long uh, section at the front of this book discussing, in, from first principles, the, the rights and wrongs of eating meat. And it is a very complex argument. Uh, incidentally, were you one of the vegetarians who put your hand up at the beginning? No, OK. Um, there is... Uh, I, 
I think the point to be made is that, that the, the, it's inescapable that there, is, that there are moral and ethical issues in the production and consumption of meat. Um, we can't just run away from them. And, and one way to deal with them, which I actually have a lot more time for than I'm often given credit for, it's often assumed that I'm a sort of, uh, either a, a sort of vegetarian hater or that I'm always trying to goad them into changing their minds and eating meat. Um, personally, I'd rather spend time with a full-on vegetarian than... Uh, a kind of horribly hypocritical carnivore um, who, for example, might want to give me a very hard time about eating squirrels uh, or shooting rabbits where, while they're still happy to go and sort of munch a, a sausage from made of factory farm pork. Um, but, uh, I mean, it, it, the, to get back to your point, uh, basically, I feel perfectly okay. Uh, I always feel nervous on the day of slaughter and what I'm most nervous about is if anything goes wrong, I want to get the animals loaded up and get them up there as quickly as possible, and I want the whole thing done efficiently. But as I uh, argue in the book, uh, at the beginning of the book, in fact, there are, however you look at it, there are a limited number of ways in which any animal can meet its end. And going to a badly run slaughterhouse is undoubtedly uh, not going to be among the best of them. But I would argue that going to a... Uh, a, a well-run slaughterhouse run by sympathetic professionals who know what they're doing isn't necessarily the worst way for an animal to meet its end. Uh, and also, uh, a heavy emphasis on this business of, of, of slaughter uh, is often, um, in the anti-meat-eating argument, uh, a rather distracting shift away from what I would consider the, the major issue, which is the issue of what happens to these animals when they're alive uh, for the many, many months that we're looking after them. And that's, that's the area where uh, I think that uh, the way we shop uh, and the choices we make is, in the end, going to make the biggest difference. And, uh, lady, just a few along from you with the white shirt and spectacles on, yeah. What's the best and most humane way of killing a chicken? If you're killing chickens yourself... Uh, I honestly think you, you can't do better than uh, the old-fashioned wringing of the neck. And uh, uh, this is what I do. It does require a sort of uh, bit of a, uh, a confidence leap. I mean, you, what I'm saying, I guess, is you can't do it half-heartedly. Uh, th there's, there's no question that you have to commit. You have to commit with a fairly severe jolt. Uh, basically, you have to separate the vertebrae so that the neck does break. Um, there are other ways of, of, of uh, doing it. You can actually hit them very, very hard across the back of the head with, with some weighty object. Uh, but that, that does have the, the, the slightly disconcerting effect that they will often flap a lot. And whilst uh, it, it's extremely unlikely that they are still conscious, it, it is a little bit off-putting. Uh, so the old-fashioned neck ringing uh, that the smallholder's been doing for a long time is, I think, the most effective dispatch. Let's uh, come over here for a bit. And uh, la lady on the end of the row, again, with a white shirt and glasses. Thank you. You mentioned making black pudding, which I'm sure is great fun. I was speaking to an organic supplier in Wasdale in Cumbria a couple of months ago, and he makes his own black pudding, and very good it is too. Um, but he said something about by 2005, he wouldn't be able to do it because new regulations coming in from guess where um, would mean that the collection of blood would have to be observed in the abattoir and that would make it too 
expensive, and so that was the end of his homemade black pudding. Now, it's a few months ago, and perhaps I was only half listening, but what can we do to stop these regulations just coming in that we know will be ignored on the continent? Uh, it is a knotty problem, that, and I, I have heard that one, uh, but I, although I've also heard from my local abattoir that, that they think they don't see that necessarily as a, as a barrier to be able to, to c collect blood. I think that commercial black pudding operators will probably be able to come to an arrangement to do with timing, which is that, you know, if it needs to be observed, let's make sure it's done. Uh, and one, one thing that's happened in the, in the, the, the whole uh, network of slaughterhouses have come under tremendous pressure from EC regulations to do with personnel uh, and things like that. Um, and uh, the, the very important bit of legislature, which rather late in the day uh, did help a lot, was when it, the um, system was changed from uh, an hourly charge to a headage charge within the system that did give the small producers a bit of a break. There was one point that looked like anyone who was going to be trying to take small numbers of animals to slaughter was going to be paying similar uh, amount of money to, to you know, big players. That, that, thanks to a very passionate campaign, has been, has been stopped. Uh, the answer is that you can achieve a lot by campaigning. Uh, you can have a very frustrating time doing it, but you can get there in the end. And the other thing that often seems to come up as potentially being under threat from EC regulations is the way in which natural casings uh, are preserved and then used. Um, now, uh, that, you know, there's the, 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 that's using the natural intestine of an animal, salting it down, keeping it indefinitely, often not uh, under light refrigeration, not, not freezing, but keeping it for a long time, and then rehydrating it and using it for products that are then not... Uh, uh, until the moment when they're cooked, heat-treated to kill any bugs. Now, the frustrating thing is that the fact that no one's ever been able to point to a case where any kind of food poisoning ever seemed to have any relationship, uh, anything to do with natural casings, doesn't seem to bother those who make the legislation. It always seems to come down to uh, some sort of process written from first principles by some bacteriologist. Um, but things like that have, have been reversed by uh, you know, passionate uh, campaigning. And that's, what, that's uh, if one gets... I mean, certainly if the black pudding looks under threat, I shall be first in line to stand up and defend it, because it's a very fine institution. Uh, so somewhere in the back in the middle, ge gentleman with a short-sleeved uh, checked shirt. How do you feel about um, freezing of meat? Because for many of us, it's not easy to get hold of good quality meat on a, in a convenient way. Very good question. Um, anyone who rears their own meat, and anyone who wants to buy, uh, as I, I highly recommend doing, kind of half animals or, home, or whole animals from small producers, uh, sort of big freezer packs, obviously, you're going to have to put that meat in a freezer. It's not, not practical to, to, to keep it fresh. Um, the key to freezing meat is very simple. Uh, it's to hang it properly before you freeze it. And meat that is really well hung and well aged uh, will come out of the freezer pretty much as good as new and quite a lot better than any meat that, hasn't been, that has been poorly hung or not hung at all in the first place, even if it's fresh. And there's a very simple reason for this. Um, 
the, the whole process of hanging meat, which again is, is discussed at some length in the book, um, it's kind of slightly counterintuitive. Uh, meat that's been hung is drier uh, than meat that hasn't been hung. Uh, it, and incidentally, that's the very simple reason why uh, the supermarkets are not remotely interested in hanging their meat properly because it involves a moisture loss of anything between 10 and 20%. And uh, if you stop and think about that for a minute, that's moisture loss, that's weight loss, that's 10 and 20%, that's money. So that's why the supermarkets don't hang their meat. Um, but that, that uh, process of, of, of mild dehydration in, in, in the maturation of the meat makes the uh, cell walls much more elastic. Uh, and the irony, or the, the, the sort of um, paradox, is that uh, well-aged meat is drier but moister when you eat it, and unaged meat is wetter but drier when you eat it because the moisture expands, breaks the cell walls, and leaches out of the meat when you, uh, uh, either when you're cooking it or when you cut it. So you end up with a, a big pool of, of bloody water uh, and drier meat. Now, all this feeds into the freezing process as well, because the well-aged meat with the more elastic uh, cell walls uh, will withstand the uh, small expansion of the remaining moisture in it much better than the wet but rigid meat that's put in the freezer. And uh, the experiment that, that proves that this is the case is if you, if you put, a, a, say, a piece of top side of beef straight from the supermarket chill cabinet that hasn't been aged in the freezer, and a very similar cut that's been really well-aged, well-hung, say, for three or four weeks, and then you remove them from the freezer, put them on a plate next to each other, you will see, at the, uh, defrost them at the same temperature, you will see at the end of that defrosting time a large pool of wet, bloody liquid on the uh, unaged meat and a much smaller trickle of liquid that's come out of the properly hung meat. So if you hang your meat and age it, you can freeze it, not absolutely with impunity, but it survives the whole process much, much better. A gentleman over here with a booklet in his hand. If your <coughs> child has a birthday approaching and requests a party at McDonald's, <laughs> do, do, do you have a message for your child? Yeah. Um, uh, what about, how about a pig roast in the backyard instead? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, he, he's your child. <laughs> How's he got to that point where he thinks that uh, par birthday party at McDonald's is the sort of, uh, the, the kind of apex of toddler entertainment? Um, yeah, time for a rethink, uh, definitely. Uh, it's actually, obviously, it's, it's an important issue is how you introduce children to foods. And I, I think the really important thing is to just uh, hide nothing from them. Um, my five-year-old understands entirely that the meat that we're eating from the freezer and the sausages that he has for his tea are from our pigs. Now, he loves going out to play with our pigs and feed them and give them a scratch behind the ear and all that. Um, and the sooner... Uh, the earlier at which those kind of connections are made by children, um, the, the better, I think. Well, the better for their future decisions, including the option to choose to be a vegetarian if they don't like the way that's done. But those decisions have to be made in, uh, in full view of the facts. And uh, 
uh, if you go into McDonald's, there's uh, very little to tell you that anything in there at all has come from a, a chicken, a, a pig, or a cow. And that's, uh, that's a, an education gap, I would say. Uh, in the, right at the front here. Can we get a mic down? Or if you shout, or if you tell me, I'll tell them what you said. Would your regime for um, happy, healthy meat include organically raised? And secondly, there's been some stuff recently suggesting that, in fact, the supposed benefits of organic rearing aren't all they're cracked up to be. And secondly, that anyway, there always has to be so much kind of compromise and, in the end, adulteration in organic rearing that it really can't be 100% achieved. Well, yeah, the organic question uh, it posed in various forms there. How good is organic meat really? Is it better for you? Does it taste better? Well, <coughs> it, it's a very complex issue. And I, I would certainly say that I don't think organic is the be-all and end-all of meat production. However, if you want any meaningful label that gives you any information at all at the moment about the welfare parameters and the extensiveness of the system and the feed that goes in to produce the meat, then the organic label is one of the very, very few labels that's meaningful at all. So from that point of view, it's extremely useful. Of course, not all organic farmers are as conscientious as others. Some have reckoned that it might be a way to buck a trend that's not going well for them in farming, to, to move over slightly reluctantly to organics. Um, but I, I certainly take issue with the suggestion that all organically produced meat is somehow compromised. Um, I know many organic farmers who are passionately pro uh, what they do, not just from a commercial point of view, but from a welfare point of view and from an environmental point of view. They really wouldn't want to do it any other way. And they're also passionately interested in taste and what they can uh, get out of the animal, the, the, the flavor they can get out of their meat at the end of it. Um, so at the moment, it, may, it, it is undoubtedly one of the most uh, useful and reliable ways to make a conversion, if you like, to an extensive system and a high welfare system is to choose the organic label. At the same time, I know there are many farmers, uh, small producers of meat, who don't want to jump through all the hoops associated with organic farming, but are nevertheless passionately committed to high welfare systems uh, and don't, uh, you know, and then what they're doing is a long, long way from what we could describe as intensive or factory farming. Um, so uh, until there are other labels that give them a chance to show what they do, or unless you have personal contact with them through a farmer's market or through farm gate sales, that, and, and which is such a great way to buy meat, because any questions you have about the means of production can be answered there and then by the farmer. So, so I mean, my, my sort of order, if you like, my hierarchy of ways for uh, making a move, if you like, are to consider uh, local and direct markets uh, first, uh, well, a very good butcher is a, uh, also has to be said. Uh, are there, is there anyone here who is a very good butcher here today in the local area? Or even a mediocre one? <laughs> no, okay, no butchers here today. But I did get hauled up the other day when I gave a talk for saying, oh, you haven't said anything about us butchers. If you've got a good butcher who can tell you about the provenance of your meat uh, and knows exactly where it comes from and who's grown it and how, then that's a good start. 
I would say even better to go direct to the farmer and buy from farmer's markets or, or farm gate sales. Uh, just get as much information as you can. If, you, if you're not buying direct, then the organic label, certainly in the supermarket, the organic label is very useful because it gives you an assurance of degree of uh, uh, quality and some very important points about uh, welfare and extensiveness and feed that, that I would want to know about. And it's about the only way you can get it in the supermarket. Right. Uh, lady over here waving her order papers. Uh, yes. Just down at the front, third row, just inside there. Hi, Hugh. Hi. Um, with regards to your concern for the welfare of animals, which I completely agree on, um, where do you stand on the dairy industry? For instance, what happens to the calves? Good which question. Which I believe are killed at five days old to put the pint of milk on the uh, table. Because you don't have dairy animals, do you? I don't have. I don't no. have. I have dabbled. When I was at River Cottage, I dabbled with a house cow called Marge. Oh, I remember that one, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, who was a Dexter and lovely, but a bit temperamental. Um, and I shared her milk with her calf, which was the old traditional smallholder way. Which, which is what I do with my goat and the billy kid, which I'm intending to curry. Right. I get a lot of hypocritical... Uh, I get a lot of hypocritical... She's intending to curry the billy goat. Did, did you get that? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Which, well, it'll, which, you'll want it to be more than five days old when you do that, won't well, you? Absolutely. Exactly. It's, it's nearly two months now, but I get a lot of hypocr hypocritical remarks... Um, with people who have a pint of milk yeah. on the table and don't know where it comes well, from. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a, a, a big issue, which I'm sure many of you uh, know, know about, and maybe some of you don't. But the, the, um, the, there is a very large degree to which the dairy industry is the meat industry. So if you want to avoid uh, meat for ethical reasons or you want to become a vegetarian, it's quite tricky, I think, to, to maintain the sort of dairy part of your diet uh, with, with uh, you know, and, and, and be consistent in, in that way. Um, that's just one point. Uh, the other point, really, is that, um, that, there, that there is a good reason that, that, that one can draw from this to support, rather than condemn, the veal industry. Having said that, I think we would condemn out of hand the crate veal industry or any uh, form of... Uh, uh, veal production that involves severely restricting the movement of the calf, as is done uh, still on the continent. Uh, um, but veal is not per se cruel meat. In fact, a calf reared for veal, um, if it's done... And, and here's, a very, here's another very uh, good time to go for the organic label, because organically reared British rosé veal uh, is, I think, an extremely worthwhile product. And basically, you have a, it's a free-range veal system where, uh, in, some, in many instances, the veal calf remains with its mother, not with its natural mother, but with a mother cow, uh, right throughout the, the rearing period. And it may be uh, barn-reared indoors during the winter months, but it'll be outdoors, uh, f uh, fed extensively on grass in the summer months. Uh, well, and also continuing to drink milk. Now, these veal calves are killed at four, five, six months, which is actually the same age as almost every pig that's killed for pork in the intensive system. So it's, we're not talking about uh, slaughtering very young animals for the production of veal. I mean, they are young, but they're not, they're not a matter of days old. And, and 
well, my, my view is that uh, a short good life is, is always better than, than no life at all, and certainly a lot better than a long, uncomfortable, uh, stressed life. So th that is an issue that ties in uh, in a rather tricky way with the, with the dairy industry, and it is d also discussed at, at some length in the book. But sometimes uh, what, what one can cl perhaps conclude from that is that sometimes uh, supporting a certain positive way, a certain positive way, of doing things, uh, casting, if you like, a positive vote, can be more constructive than a sort of blanket denial of, uh, of, of a system. Uh, so yes, uh, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, our sponsor in the front row here, who I would like to thank, Extreme Organics. Uh, what, what, uh yeah, just coming back to your, um, the question on the person on my left about organic farming systems and things. We are both organic farmers and we run an or a takeaway in town, which we put our own organic meat through the takeaway. I think anyone in here has eaten in there or eaten the lamb in there will probably say that it's very tasty. Um, the one thing I'd like to say to put people's minds at rest on this organic question is it's very, very highly regulated. You have a, a, a very officious um, uh, almost an examination every year on the farm and your farm is checked out um, you can't just say oh I'm going to go organic and you, all of a sudden you're organic it, take, it takes years of, of um, management and it's very highly regulated so yeah. organic meat that's, that's got a label on either um, OF&G or Soil Association whether it be in the supermarket or wherever else has has been regulated. It's it's absolutely you can't get away from it. It is it is. Organic. Yes, I think I think that a, f a very fair point there. It is very very hard to cheat the organic system and produce meat that. Uh, I mean, I, the other another way of putting that, I suppose, uh, is to say that really, however you look at it, there is at the moment, and long may it continue, there is no such thing as intensively reared organic meat. Um, and, and so from that point of view, it is ex an extremely reassuring label. Um, the, only, the only point I was making earlier is that it, it, you're not guaranteed, uh, the organic system doesn't guarantee flavor, um, absolutely, um, or it doesn't guarantee a better flavor than every other non-organic system. Uh, because uh, that, uh, you know, the feed regimes I I within an organic system, even though they're, they're of very good quality, can, I mean, the way to get very, very tasty pork is to have a very, very varied feed regime for your pig so that it's getting some roots, it's getting some green stuff, it's getting some cereal, and that's staggered throughout the year. If you're growing crops for your pig or maybe feeding them some pea silage or beans, not necessarily very practical for, for um, any, uh, people to do, and it does push up the price of the meat. But that's the way to create great-tasting pork. Um, the organic feed pellet is a marked improvement on the non-organic feed pellet for, for, for pork, but it's still a relatively tedious diet for a pig if you want really incredibly tasty meat. Um, so all I'm saying is that the issues are not absolutely straightforward and clear-cut, but I wouldn't be suggesting for a minute that the, that the organic label is, is ever misleading or meaningless. I think it absolutely stands up for the, the values upheld by, by the organizations who who very, as you rightly say, very strictly uh, monitor uh, those, those farms. 
I think we've just got time for a couple more questions. And there's a gentleman uh, here in the sort of 10th row back with his hand up. And then your then lady in the front, promise we'll come to you last. Thank you very much. Uh, if you win your argument, and I sincerely hope that you do, are we able, going to be able to produce as much food extensively as we currently produce intensively? Well, I, I, I think the answer to that is obviously no, meat-wise. Um, but I think we could uh, afford to produce a lot less meat. I mean, one of the interesting things is we've, we've more or less already, in, in terms of the, the way we farm in this country, we've more or less lost all the, battle, <coughs> all the battles that are do, to do with competing on price. But we can still win the battles that are to do with competing on quality. And we could, as a nation, if we wanted to, uh, set the very, very high standards of, of meat production. We could be a producer, uh, a nation of small-scale meat producers producing to an extremely high standard. And we could all be enjoying, as a result of that, uh, far better meat a little less often right across the board. Now, I don't think that's going to happen today or tomorrow or for a long time. I think what's more likely to happen is that it's going to kind of split into a two-tier system. Uh, the the small-scale production and the intensive systems running alongside each other. And given that that's, I mean, that's kind of already what's happening, what I would be arguing for is just to increase that sector of the market as rapidly and comprehensively as possible that is about quality and extensiveness, and to do so at the expense of the intensive end of the market, just to be... Uh, winning a few more of the battles and grabbing a bigger share. That has to be the aim, uh, the, the, sh the short to medium term aim. And once we start winning those battles, well, perhaps we can genuinely look at the bigger picture and the way we farm as a nation. L lady in the front here, who, who, and, and this is going to have to be the last question. In as much as we, we touched on price, and whilst I endorse the loveliness of, of uh, free-range animals, we had a turkey at Christmas which cost nearly ninety pounds. The equivalent in the supermarket was about twelve. How I mean, how slow is it going to be? I feel for the, the less well-off to be able to afford decent meat. Well, it, it does require a big shift in attitude. The lady was saying that price difference between a, a slowly reared. Uh, uh, free range, I don't know, possibly organic turkey at Christmas, it was like 50 quid versus 12 or 15 pounds. 80 quid. It's a very, very big leap to make. But, you, you know, you are comparing the, uh, the, the useless, the pappy, the tasteless, the dull, the boring, with hopefully something that was extremely worthwhile. The shift, I mean, poultry is uh, the most dramatic example of this, really. And the problem is that the, 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 the poultry system production system has become so intense that really you're reducing uh, the, the, the chicken meat to a, a kind of commodity that, that you could think about like kind of maize or sugar or, or coffee or cocoa. It's, it's taken, taken it completely away from the notion that it's got anything to do with an animal at all. Well, my response to that is if you stopped and... and, and use the amazing technology that you're now applying to produce uh, a two-and-a-half-pound chicken in six weeks flat, uh, maybe you could use some of the stuff that goes into feeding that chicken, the soya and the various proteins, and come up with a chicken substitute that wouldn't require you to trouble a chicken for its meat at all. I mean, really, the end product is worth little more than that, as far as I'm concerned. 
It, it requires a massive shift in attitude, uh, but it's a shift that more and more people are prepared to make, and it's one that uh, I heartily believe, heartily believe we can pull off. Let's go for it, I say. Thank you very much.